Hello, and welcome to In All Things, a podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a global movement of Evangelical Presbyterian churches. Thank you for joining us. I'm Rachel Joseph. Your host for In All Things is Dean Weaver, stated clerk of the EPC. Our prayer is that God uses Dean and his guests to both inform and inspire you about how God is working in and through the EPC. The motto of our family of churches is, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, here's Dean. And thank you, Rachel. And thank you to all of you who are joining us again on our podcast, In All Things. It's a delight to have you joining us today. We know there are things that you could be doing with your time, especially when you're working out or taking that walk around the block, uh, but that you choose to tune in and uh, be a part of this community is a great gift to us. So I want to thank all of you for tuning in again to this edition. And if uh, the volumes uh, or voices sound a slight bit different today, we especially thank you for your indulgence as this is our first try at doing some remote recording of our podcast. One of my responsibilities as the stated clerk is to be out on the road and recently had the opportunity to visit with the Presbytery of the Gulf South. And uh, we have an upcoming retreat for pastors and spouses here in Florida. And so I'm on the road quite a bit during these first early months of 2022. And that means the, the podcast show must go on. And so some of our podcasts over the next number of weeks are likely to include doing them from remote locations. Speaking of of traveling and some of those kind of activities, I am excited about the pastor retreat that is coming up. It's our second one. We had one earlier last October and uh, was a terrific success, uh, met a great need, and we're very excited about the one that is upcoming. But I want you to stay tuned to initiatives that may be coming down the road of what I'm referring to now as a pastoral care to pastors. How do we help presbyteries support our teaching elders and their families? And there's a lot of aspects to that, everything from taking their vacation and study leave, making the most use of their medical benefits, particularly wellness initiatives, but then also things like sabbatical policies and things of that nature. So there'll be more about that in the days to come, maybe some podcasts around it as well, but um, we really want to do the best we can at caring for those who can go long-term in the ministry. Now, speaking of long-term in the ministry, I'm really pleased today to be welcoming a a dear friend of mine, and we've known each other for a really long time, probably longer than either one of us cares to admit, and he has been in the EPC a really long time and has served in a number of really important roles, but I'll let him tell you more about that. We're joined today by a teaching elder, Roger Woodworth, and Roger is joining us from his home outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And Roger, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here and glad to be hanging out with you for a little while. It is always great to spend time together. I wish we were doing it face-to-face, but trust that that will happen one day soon. Yes, it will. So Roger, give people a little bit of background. Tell tell, uh, the audience a little bit about yourself, help them get familiar with you, your family, and your tenure of ministry in the EPC. I came into EPC in, in 1990, 91, I believe after having been uh, in the PCUSA in Rochester, New York, for several years. I have been a pastor and church planter, primarily an urban church planter uh, here in Pittsburgh. 
I also served as the chairman of the National Outreach Committee when it was such a thing back in those days for about nine years. I oversaw some of our church planting assessment centers as well for a number of years, uh, working with Bob Stauffer on those ventures. And had, for a while was also the director of cross-cultural ministries for the Coalition for Christian Outreach, our kind of uh, campus ministry that we work with in the EPC, and held a number of other positions and volunteer roles within the Presbytery of the Alleghenies and the Presbytery of the East before that. So I've been around for a while. I've had some great opportunities to serve and some great learning experiences as well. More recently, you've had the opportunity to serve in a teaching capacity. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I've been an adjunct professor both at the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary here in Pittsburgh and Trinity School for Ministry. It's an Anglican seminary here in, in Pittsburgh. Just finished my tour, my tenure with there this last spring, teaching a couple of classes I taught on mission evangelism and on related to culture. Enjoyed that. Miss it a little bit, but on to some new things. All of the things that you have background in, from church planning to mission and culture and evangelism, church health issues, those are all the things that, and you know this because you've been with the EPC for so long, those are all the things that are just foundational to who we are as the EPC. And and uh, you've been at the, uh, the front end of doing that for uh, as, as long as the EPC has been around doing ministry. Yeah, almost. And uh, it's been an important issue for, for me. You obviously learn a lot about church in general when you plant a church, because you're starting from the very beginning. I had the fortunate of being planted by a two different mother churches, which gave us a lot of support and a lot of assistance in the process. One of them, as you know, of course, Dean was the church you were pastoring at the time at Memorial Park. It's given me a real full understanding of, of the church, both having you know, the assistance of mother churches, working at the denominational level, and starting churches from scratch. Well, and the church you planted with us, of course, was right downtown in Pittsburgh. And then for years, with the help of North Park EPC, you planted New Hope EPC Church, which is a, a thriving, multi-ethnic, largely African-American congregation in the Marshall Shadeland section of Pittsburgh. So you have a, a lot of experience as a church planner, particularly in cross-cultural and multi-ethnic settings. Yes, we planted both of the churches in the north side and downtown with an intentionality of being cross-cultural. Of course, in Pittsburgh, it's pretty much limited to black and white, especially in the north side where we were attempting to do that. So the place where we planted a church in the north side was a working poor uh, neighborhood that was moving from predominantly white to more African-American. And so we started the church at a very strategic time. And again, we're very intentional of looking to engage that kind of racial reconciliation. So it took us several years to kind of get to, oh, somewhere around a 40 to 50 percent mix of black and white in the, in the church. Not without our struggles, but uh, we, we eventually got there. Combined with your experience with the Coalition for Christian Outreach as the director of cross-cultural ministries, your experience, your background from Rochester to Pittsburgh to the CCO through the EPC, 
that has led you to this season of your life where you've been able to offer the church the gift of some of that uh, pastoral experience and wisdom that you've accumulated. And you've written two books in the last couple of years. I want to concentrate on the second one today, but briefly tell us a little bit about Kingdom Holiness and what was your thinking behind that, your first book? It's entitled Kingdom Holiness, and the subtitle is Holy Living in Challenging Culture. I wanted to take what I had been learning in our in our different contexts of cross-cultural ministry and, and apply it through Scripture. So I took a what I call an accessible exposition of Second Peter with intentionally small group questions at the end, and uh, trying to address this focus of trying to live in that tension we hear about of being in the world but not of the world. And through the lens of Second Peter, so it's a it's this tension of a of a dual calling that doesn't allow us to be holy by escaping the world, uh, nor surrender our holiness by conforming to the world. So this this constant tension of this balancing between those two things ultimately ends up becoming a a method of discipleship because it's a, it's a challenge to do that, and that's what I've learned in most of this cross cultural experiences. Of trying to maintain that center position, which G.K. Chesterton calls a radical center, and really what he's saying is it's the cross. Because no matter what the tension is between black and white, rich and poor, uh, or just living in that tension of not trying to escape the world but engage the world, it's a difficult challenge to maintain the middle. And I think today it's even more so try to be in the center. You wrote that book before the pandemic, but boy, that seems to be even more <laughs> appropriate yeah. given where we are today. So unpack a little bit more of that radical center, uh, Roger, because that will get into your, your second book a little bit. But talk to us a little bit about how that space needs to be cultivated by followers of Jesus, particularly in the time in which we live. Why is that so important right now? Well, I think, again, Chesterton's reference to radical center really is its implication of the cross. And to be able to engage both continuums of any division that we have, you have to go to the cross. We were instructed to embrace that cross, pick up that cross, follow Jesus. And that really means what I always have said, surrendering our right to be right. We can be right, we can be biblical, but we don't have to always win the argument. And that's not easy to do, especially, as you mentioned, in the last couple of years, even if you hint at being by using a particular word or whatever, to one side or the other, the other side accuses you of, of being aligned with someone different than they are aligned to. So it's just hard to kind of walk in that, that, that middle, and it really involves surrendering yourself to, to Jesus and to that kind of cross that he calls us to bear. I, I don't know that we often think of the cross as being the radical middle. I think sometimes people associate the middle as being a place of compromise where people aren't uh, standing on the truth. And yet it seems, uh, you know, one of the things I find interesting these days, Roger, is that Mark Sayers, who's one of the great exegetes of Western culture, suggests that we would, the, the radical right is going further to the right and the radical left mm -hmm. is going further to the left. And that it, it there's very little space left between those increasingly polarizing extremes for people to cultivate kingdom conversation. And uh, it seems like if we would put the cross at the center, perhaps that's something where at least people of faith could be drawn to have that common ground, because all of us are equal at the foot of the cross. 
that's exactly correct. And and I think that's what Chesterton was trying to, to get at. It's, I think it's even more true today because it is a radical idea to be in that center, to find the, the middle ground, to be more aligned with Christ than any particular left or right ideology or left or right theology or left or right practice of ministry, to be so focused in on Christ and, and him crucified uh, is kind of radical today. Let's take that over into your next book. And this just came out recently, but it couldn't be any more timely. This idea of playing favorites. You have a kind of a pastoral, but a winsome, ironically biblical approach to really what has been the, the issue of the day that perhaps has divided us more than any other. Walk, walk us through playing favorites and what led you to, re, to write that book. Again, the subtitle to playing favorites is overcoming our prejudice to bridge the, the cultural divide. And I, I think I see something to the effect at the end of this book, this trying to find that center again, this unity and diversity, this overcoming our prejudice to bridge the cultural divide is not only the result of living out the gospel, but is the best way to communicate the gospel. I think our divisions have so much hidden uh, the true gospel and what Christ came to accomplish in Austin and his kingdom. And so coming over that, coming, getting past our, our hidden prejudice, uh, none of us like to think that we are prejudiced, but at the very least, we have our preferences and, and our priorities. I learned this over a long period of time. You know, it seems that within the last, through the last couple of elections, that this has been kind of highlighted even more, more so, or has exposed the divisions that we've had. But from my experience, it's been around for a while. And certainly, you know, since we had our first black president, at that time, uh, our church was about 50-50 black and white. And while I very rarely would mention politics from the pulpit, after the election, I felt it was important for us at least to acknowledge the historic event of this first black president for 50% of our congregation. And so I did that without getting into too much specifics about politics. But on Monday morning, I got a phone call from a young couple that I had married in the church and had done their premarital counseling and were furious that I had mentioned this new black president in our congregation. It was primarily over the issue of abortion. So I brought him in to meet with, at that time we had five elders and three of them were African-American. And so I had them come in and meet with this young man. And it was actually a pretty gracious conversation as he heard uh, the perspective of these three black elders and why they felt this was so important to them. At the same time, affirming to him that we were uh, holistically pro-life but that their perspective, uh, they had some other pro-life kind of issues that, that they that they wanted him to be aware of. Ultimately, though, we couldn't keep him in the church, and uh, they left. So we had a number of issues that kind of highlighted what we're now experiencing. So I had experienced that for nearly 20 years in the context of our, our neighborhood. Things like when we built our first affordable housing, Right after the ribbon cutting, I had a, a gentleman pull up in front of the houses as we were cleaning up from the ceremonies, and he yelled out the window, get some white people in those houses. That's the kind of racial tension that existed in our neighborhood for most of the time I was uh, a pastor there. 
So we had experienced very visibly the divisions that we're experiencing now. So I think a lot of what we're experiencing now had been uh, around in different places in different ways, but it's now just come to the surface a lot more. That's part of the reason that I wrote the, the newest book, Playing Favorites. Trying to, you know, I love putting small group questions in there so we can get people to engage this. And so that's what I'm hoping we can accomplish with this book, if we can get people to read it. I made it readable, short, uh, not overwhelming in that sense, but gets people to start some dialogues and have some, maybe offer some healing through the small group discussions by making it accessible to everyone. So you've touched on two of what I think are the three strengths of your book, Roger. You've touched on pastoral nature. In other words, this came out of your own pastoral experience. And I think readers will find the tone of the book pastoral and helpful, not polemical. It's not a ideologically driven diatribe that's going to alienate people. It's a pastoral addition. It's intended to help people try to navigate these difficult conversations. You also mentioned how practical it is because you you built it for small groups with questions, which is uh, really important to discipleship. But there's a third element that I think is one of the strengths of your book, and that has to do with the fact that it's profoundly biblical. You, you Your pastoral gifts and all of that you have done, I know you. it is based on the scripture, your love of the scripture. And so you steep this book without, again, getting preachy in a negative sense. It's just laying out biblical foundations for a pastoral application. Could you speak to us about just what the scripture has to say to the subject and why it is so foundational? I start with basically building on God's nature of impartiality. It's mentioned in Deuteronomy 10.17 and Romans 2.11 building on the fact that this is God's very nature to be impartial, that is to show no favoritism. And then I built that on uh, also on Jesus's ministry of him tearing down the dividing wall of hostility and creating one new uh, race or one new human being out of the divisions between Jews and, and Gentiles. And then also some examples of Jesus's work of reconciliation the healings that he did that broke down, literally broke down the walls, healing lepers, healing a Gentile, healing a woman, Peter's mother-in-law in Matthew chapter 8. And that really, if you look at that chapter, it talks about all of the walls that were there. So there was a wall that eliminated the lepers from coming into the city. There was a wall that separated the Gentiles. And then there was a court of the women that kept the women from. And of course, the last wall was uh, the curtain uh, that was torn from top to bottom when he was crucified. So there's these pictures of the walls that Matthew wonderfully portrays as Jesus goes and heals these different people. And so we, te- we see those dividing walls actually torn down and uh, being opened up. So I, I try to build that kind of biblical basis from the, the character of God himself and, and Jesus' son as he acted out that that character in his ministry of being impartial, of showing no favoritism. And that's a challenge for us because in our sinfulness, we kind of, we have some inherent preferences and prejudice and favoritism. And so it's a, it's a legitimate sinful activity that we need to figure out how to overcome. So what counsel would you give Roger to, I mean, as I'm talking with pastors out there, 
you know, in the last two years, I mean, it's been hard enough with the global pandemic and all of the dynamics that are at play in a local church setting. But when some of these flashpoint events have occurred in our culture and pastors have tried to speak to them, even from that kind of place of the radical middle, right, not taking a political stance on one side or the other, but just saying things like God cares about the the marginalized or cares about the oppressed or that God is a God of justice or something, things that are pretty uh, in, in that radical middle that you talked about earlier. And yet those statements, they've just gotten brutalized for, yeah. for saying those things. Given our current environment, what counsel would you give to a pastor who is considering taking your book and doing a study with maybe his elders or some core leaders in the church? Why should they put themselves through that? What's the, what's the takeaway that would be a benefit to them if they were to go into those kind of stirred up waters? One of the things that we lack is uh, cultural intelligence. We do not know the other cultures around us very well. We know some maybe based on what we have read, but how much have we spent time uh, listening and learning from whether it's the Black culture or Asian Americans or Hispanic, et cetera, whatever it is. And and as you know, that culture is much more broad than just our different ethnicities the culture of the poor, the culture of those who have been incarcerated, uh, the culture of those who are homeless. We know statistics, we know about some of the issue, but we haven't gotten to know people. And that's one of the things that I really emphasize in the book is to try to to put an emphasis on the the misfits over the multitudes. We get so caught up as pastors, and it's easy to do, and I understand that I get caught up with myself, of trying to find success by numbers, whether it's nickels and narthexes, you know, the size of our ministry, et cetera. And in the process, we overlook people. And so getting to spend time with people and going out of our way, find a way to put yourself in a minority status. For example, one of the suggestions I make is, can you find an African-American or an Asian-American service provider, a doctor or insurance agent? somebody that is not of your homogeneous group and put yourself in a, in a context like that. All of these kinds of things help us better understand. So when the issue comes to the surface and some national event takes place, we can speak to it more authentically because we've got some relationships, we've got some experiences that are beyond our, our homogeneous group. And the book kind of reinforces the reasons to do that, but also give some practical ways of stepping out and trying to do that as well. The big question I've always had is from a suburban pastor. So I don't have any other groups of people. I don't have any diversity around my church or my my uh, neighborhood, et cetera. And I understand that. So it makes it a, a, a more difficult challenge. That's where we have to go out of our comfort zone and seek out those kinds of experiences and those kinds of counsel. Well, and even in uh, the most monolithic of communities, you still will have generational differences, uh, socioeconomic differences. Absolutely. So there's always opportunities to, uh, I like the phrase that Sarah Shin uses, Roger, in her book, Beyond Colorblind. She uses the word ethnic curiosity, and she encourages us to be curious about our own ethnicity 
which yes. uh, a lot of times people of majority culture are are not. But there's interesting things there to explore. But that kind of curiosity of your own ethnicity, and then to be just interested and curious about the the background of the other. Tell me more about your background and experience, and and uh, that curiosity only helps build relationships. And I guess my final question for you is in the context of relationships, how is something like dealing with these kind of prejudices that we might have inside of us, how is dealing with that help us in terms of relationships that might lead to evangelism? How will that help us take down any barriers that might keep us from sharing the gospel with people? The more and more we understand ourselves, I think you made an important point of looking into our own ancestry, and we may discover some things that are more diverse in our ancestry than we even realize. Also, to begin to find out our prejudice. For example, it was common for people to say, well, I'm, to me especially, would just say, well, I'm, I'm colorblind. I don't, I don't see color. Well, one of the African-American pastors with that I had lunch with every week for years till he passed away, he would say to that, then how do you describe me to the police? Now, there's a lot being said when he, when he asked that question. Don't say you're colorblind, then how do you describe me to the police? We have to recognize that we're not colorblind. We do see certain things to people, whether it's skin color or anybody that we're meeting we had, there are these stereotypes of, of people. So as we go to engage someone from our neighborhood, the community, even in the church, it's often it comes up to the surface. We look at someone, we meet them, and we make some prejudgments, which is what prejudice really is. We make some assumptions. We make some prejudgments about people. And that can affect how we can more honestly and purely share the gospel with them. If we feel like that there are some things about them that cause us to stumble in sharing the gospel with them or to share the gospel completely or purely, uh, it's going to hinder that evangelism approach. So I think the more we can see people purely in the image of God, the Imago Dea uh, of every single person, he does see color, he does see some of the things that we see in people, but his ability to show impartiality, meaning he does not judge that and to have assumptions about them at all. So I think the more we can overcome those things, the easier it is to share the gospel with someone. That's why I think one of the unique contributions of your book, Roger, is you start with a biblical basis for the impartiality of God. And I think that's a, a really unique starting point. I really encourage uh, all of our pastors and elders who are listening into this podcast to consider getting Roger's book. I think both books are worthy of your time and would be beneficial in your discipleship, but particularly in the moment, uh, the cultural moment that we're living in. Um, his new book, Playing Favorites, I think could be a great kind of entry-level study uh, for people who want to begin to know how they can approach this pastorally, biblically, and very practically without further causing a greater divide, but rather entering into the reconciling work uh, that this radical center has at the cross of Jesus. So Roger, tell us a little bit, finally, how people can get a hold of your books and any other information in closing that you have for us. It's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. I strongly recommend a, a Christian book seller, a friend of mine from Hearts and Minds Books. Uh, you can look up heartsandminds.com 
and you can order it from him at the same price from Amazon. I'd love to see him support it. Byron Borger is his name. And Byron's probably one of those people I need to have on as a guest, Roger, in the near future, because not just supporting a small business, but Byron is such a great curator of books that help cultivate the mind. And he does book reviews and recommendations. And my oldest daughter just lives off of Byron's book recommendations. <laughs> and then a lot of people do. So check out Hearts and Minds Bookstore and look for Roger's book. The full title again, Roger, is Plain Favorites, Overcoming Our Prejudice to Bridge the Cultural Divide. Terrific. Well, thank you, Roger. I appreciate uh, that more than you know. That's a a gift uh, not only to me, but it's a gift to the entire church. And uh, I hope and encourage all of our pastors who are listening or our elders who are listening to be able to to dig into that book. I think they'll find it profitable uh, for the teaching training up in, in righteousness. So thank you again, friends, for listening in today. And I hope that uh, you've enjoyed this conversation as I have, and find that it uh, helps you grow closer to the Savior. Please pass the word along to others. Take this episode and whatever you're listening, whether it's on uh, Podbean or or Spotify or Apple, uh, wherever you're listening to this, would you go ahead and like us on social media and spread the word so others can join in as well? And I want to close, as I often do, with this reminder uh, from God's word. The sun is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, for he is the head of the body, the church. So, my friends, remember to live before him faithfully in all things as he gives us his good grace to do. Until the next time, grace and peace to you. Thank you again for joining us. On behalf of Dean and the entire team, we hope you will join us for our next episode of In All Things. For more information about the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, including a directory of local churches, online resources, and much more, visit our website at www.epc.org. I'm Rachel Joseph. I pray you have an overwhelming sense of God's presence in all things today.